So here we are in the parables of Mark, and this is probably the biggest single block of teaching that we've got in in this book. A lot of Mark is about what Jesus did. There's lots of he did this and then that and immediately and then immediately did that. There's a lot of action in it. And what we've got here in the book of Mark is is the biggest block of teaching. Um, it's about what Jesus said rather than just about what he did. But before we dive into this block of teaching, I want to tease out some of the wisdom we can get from the setting of this teaching. Because here we have Jesus teaching in parables and he sat in a boat with the crowd on the shore around him. Now, you'd think that if a, a big teacher is going to be doing some big teaching, he would choose an impressive location. But he didn't. He didn't choose the temple. He didn't choose a mountain top. He chose a simple fishing boat. And I think that we can we can learn something from that, if, because this was a message to all the people, not just the, the great and the good who could get into the temple, not just, you know, the people who could get up onto a mountaintop. This was a message to the people who who worked with their hands and eked out a living along the shoreline. It shows us that God is accessible for those who are simple rather than kind of philosophical elite. This is not meant to be a message for the the kind of intellectuals. It's not meant to be a message for the people who spend their time hanging out in temples. He chose to preach in a boat rather than on a hilltop. The other thing that is interesting, again, you know, Jesus is this, this great teacher. And we've got other teachers around in the Bible. We've got, you know, we've got Moses, we've got the prophets, we've got people like uh, Paul and, and Peter. But what we've got here is Jesus's form of teaching is the only place in the Bible where we see him see teaching in parables. Now, what's interesting about the parables is just how simple they are. You'd think that nobody knows God better than Jesus. Um, and yet Paul, he had all this, this deep, deep theology and, and complex structures and, and, you know, stuff that you can just dig into and, and sentences which are so packed full of extra little bits that it's hard to know the beginning from the end. And yet we've got, here we've got Jesus teaching incredibly simply. And he, throughout the Gospels, you see Jesus just teaching very, very simply. He taught in parables. Now, I'm going to be focusing on the parable of the sower, and I expect that most of you know this parable off by heart. I'm not meaning like verbatim scripture, but do you know the story well enough to to remember it, to be able to kind of mull over it or be able to tell it to somebody else? Jesus teaches us in parables. And they're meant to be simple. And that's the whole point of them. They're meant to be simple enough to remember, simple enough to to think about, simple enough that you don't have to memorize them word from word. It doesn't matter the exact words he used. The story is the same. And you see that between the Gospels, that the the recounting of of the, the different Gospel writers of the same parable is subtly different, but they have exactly the same meaning. It's not the exact words that matter. It's the it's the meaning behind this. And that doesn't change. It's meant to be simple. 
Um, we don't need to know ancient Greek to become a Christian. We don't need some amazing IQ. And I would say that in the Western world, Christianity has become this intellectual heavyweight. Um, and I think that in reality, Christianity should be more about what we do and less about what we know, because there's not going to be an exam to pass to get into heaven. There's only one question, which is, do you know Jesus? There'll be no test on our, how well we know scripture or our understanding of weird bits of theology. 2 Corinthians 5.10 says, For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, that each one may receive what is due to him in the things done while in the body, whether good or bad. The things done while in the body. Now, I would prefer to do more and know less than to know more and do less. So the first reason Jesus uses parables is because they're simple and they're accessible. The second reason why Jesus uses parables is that they're relevant. Um, he's looking to connect with people. You know, the first bit of the connection was, you know, he's down there on the waterfront. The second part of the connection is with these simple parables that they're relevant. They're relevant to the culture he's in. And if you look at the topics of the parables, they're things about farming, sowing seeds, journeys, fishing, houses, um, hiding treasure, that sort of thing. He uses topics that everyone in the culture around him would understand. He doesn't use these crazy images like, for example, in Daniel, if you're not into Babylonian history, some of that is really very strange. Um, he doesn't use these long, complex speeches like Jeremiah or Isaiah or, um, you know, the deep theology that you see from, from Paul. He uses very, very simple, relevant stories. God wants to be relevant to our lives and our culture. And what's interesting about these parables is that they will always be relevant and understood. From the beginning of creation to the end of time, people will understand sowing seeds or fishing or hiding treasure. Those things are timeless. I was going to say that if Jesus was preaching today, he might have used the parable of the emails rather than the parable of the sower. But Nothing could be further than the truth, because in 2000 years time, 2000 years from now, no one would understand what an email even was. They will have been way forgotten by then. If there is a year 4000, they would be completely out of date. But in 2000 years since the parable of the sower, we still understand the concept of sowing seeds. He uses analogies and topics which are not just relevant, but they're timelessly relevant. So that was the second point. Third point about why Jesus uses um, parables is that they're all about revelation, a sudden understanding, a sudden awakening. It says in verse 11, the secret of the kingdom of God has been given to you. But to those on the outside, everything is said in parables so that they may be ever seeing but never perceiving and ever hearing but never understanding. Otherwise, they might turn and be forgiven. Now, superficially, this seems a very odd thing for Jesus to say. Could it possibly mean that he doesn't want people to be saved? Well, that can't possibly be true. It can't be right because it doesn't fit in with the rest of Scripture. Instead, God wants to work through revelation. He wants to work through that awakening moment that the penny drops, the scales of your eyes are removed and you think there's more to this. There is more to this. 
it's not just a Christianity is not just a formula or a, a spell that you follow. It's not just a philosophical belief, you know, like my belief in gravity um, isn't something that I kind of feel in my heart. It's just a, a it's just a simple fact. You know, it's, it's nothing that changes my 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 lifestyle it, well, it does change my lifestyle because i'm stuck on the ground but it's not something that i kind of have an, a, a buy-in emotionally that's what god wants he wants that buy-in he wants that relationship not just a thin understanding not just a, a kind of a, a simple philosophical kind of i accept this but a a deep personal belief the parables that Jesus taught allow you that revelation moment. They are very simple, as I've said before, and you can mull them over, you can understand them, you can remember them very simply. And the more you think about them, the more revelation you get from them. You come at it from a different angle and you get more meaning and more understanding, all from this very simple story. You see, the purpose of scripture is not the understanding of scripture. It's the understanding of God. I'll say that again and then unpack it. The purpose of scripture is not the understanding of scripture. It is the understanding of God. And that is what sets scripture apart from other, other things. It's about this revelation. It's about this connection to something else. You see, if you had the misfortune to study Macbeth, you might understand the story of Macbeth. You might even be able to understand a little bit about the constructed person of Macbeth, but you would never understand the person of Shakespeare. Yes, you might be able to kind of scrape out some elements of his culture or his history, but you wouldn't know more about Shakespeare the person by studying the book of Macbeth. That revelational link just isn't there. There is no kind of passage between the words and the person. And that's what makes scripture different. You learn more of God by understanding more of scripture because there is this revelation and God speaks to us through that revelation. You see, scripture has been given to us for a purpose, to reveal God and his will and character to us. It's not just an end to itself. Studying scripture on its own is never going to get you anywhere. And that's why we believe that, you know, um, Bible says that all scripture is God breathed. There's something of God in it and comes through it. God wants you to seek him and to find him. He wants to reveal himself to you and he wants you to have that moment of clarity, that moment of awakening where you understand that God is there and you get closer to him. By using parables, Jesus gives us that opportunity to have that light bulb moment. So that's all about why Jesus used parables. Now I'm going to look at the parable itself. Um, I can't hope to get through all of the bits that are in this passage. So I'm going to focus on the parable of the sower because that's what the bulk of this passage is about. The first thing that I think that I notice here is the generosity of the sower. And he sows everywhere. He sows on the path. He sows on the rocks. He sows amongst the weeds. He sows on good soil and bad soil alike. There's just no end to his generosity he just wants everything to be covered in seed he's a generous sower he's chucking seed like there's no tomorrow now if you didn't have much seed 
you would be more cautious. You, you might plant a smaller area in the best soil and protect it and leave the rest to turn into a thicket. But not this sower, not God. He is sowing everywhere, even on land that he knows or should know is never going to produce a crop. But he gives everything a chance anyway, equally chance. And, and what this shows is, is the deep desire that God has for the lost. 2 Peter 3.9 says he is patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. 1 Timothy 2.3 says this is good and pleases God our Saviour, who wants all men to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. God wants everyone to be saved, that none should perish. God is this generous sower. Other things that we can pick out of this, and, and the main thing I want to look at, are the four different situations the four different people that this parable shows there are those who just don't understand the gospel just don't get it they're just closed from it there's those who understand it but it doesn't last those who get choked by weeds and those who bear fruit and that's what i'm going to look at in the rest of this sermon so the first group of those are those who hear the gospel but they just don't get it the message just doesn't seem to get in and there's always some people who who just don't seem to respond to the gospel. Um, maybe they've got these preconceived ideas about Christianity or they don't like the idea that God could be more important than them. This kind of ego issue or that they don't believe that God could exist or that sin could exist. This relative truth sort of thing. The important thing for us to know as Christians is that this isn't our problem. We are called to sow the seeds regardless. And yes, some people won't respond, but we don't know who those people are. It's not something that we know until after we've sown the seed. It's not our problem. It's not something that we can do anything about. God is a generous sower, and so therefore we should be a generous sower as well. We can't prejudge people by deciding whether or not they would ever respond to the gospel before we give them the gospel. Um, if we think that they would never respond to the gospel, so we don't give them the gospel, then strangely enough, they will never respond to the gospel. Um, this was an early lesson that, that God taught um, the disciples in the book of Acts. Um, the persecuting Saul met Jesus, was absolutely transformed, and his life was so transformed that he changed his name and became Paul. Um, and the disciples had to change their attitude very quickly that anybody could become a Christian. So that's the first group of people, the people who just don't get it. Luckily, that's not of our problem. The second group of people are those who receive the gospel, but it doesn't get rooted into their lives. And when any kind of difficulty comes along, they just fall away. Sadly, I had a friend who this happened to. They're a good friend of mine at university, a guy called Simon. He went to, well, from school. He went to university in Bristol. I was down in London. Um, both of us got very involved in drugs. He ended up in drug-induced psychosis. And in fact, so had I. I became a Christian and got healed. And he was very interested as well because, you know, he was in a very bad way. And he came to my baptism in London. And at, after the, the meeting, he, he came to the front and he became a Christian. And I was there praying with him, tears running down our faces. And he was healed. It was amazing. And... I, we were living in different places. We were living in different worlds. I couldn't be alongside him. You know, at the end of the, the baptism, he got on his train and went back to, to, to Birmingham. 
and I tried to keep up with him. And when I did, there was never any mention of church. There was never any mention of how his lifestyle had changed, even though he had been healed. His faith never lasted and he fell away. It's very important to be in a church. And we need to support people as a church to help people root into their faith. We should provide good soil to be welcoming and nurturing because we don't know what fragile seeds of faith are already just growing in people's lives and where we should be nurturing and supporting people. I think that's very important to be a church that welcomes in and encourages and nurtures. So that's the first two group of people. The third group of people are the seeds among thorns. The passage says in verse 18, still others like seed sown amongst thorns hear the word, but the worries of this life and the deceitfulness of wealth and the desires of other things come in and choke the word, making it unfruitful. So what this passage mentions here is one of the things is wealth, the deceitfulness of wealth. Now, I don't want to I could you know, I don't want to get too deeply involved in, in talking about the deceitfulness of wealth. So just 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 briefly. Um, wealth deceives us by us always wanting more, striving after something we don't have. But wealth is like running a race where there is no finish line. There is always more money that you don't have. If you had a million pounds and somebody else had one, then that person with one would have something you don't have. You can never have enough money. There is always some money you don't have. And your eyes will always look towards what you don't have rather than what you do have. The second way that wealth deceives us is by linking our value to our wealth. It tricks us into thinking that the more we have, the more important we are. But both of these lies make us work harder and longer and worry more and want more and value ourselves less. I, want, I could say a whole lot about wealth, but now's not the time. I'll just leave you with this other verse, which is 1 Timothy chapter 6, 17 says, Command those who are rich in this present world not to be arrogant or to put their hope in wealth, which is so uncertain, but to put their hope in God, who richly provides us with everything for our enjoyment. Command them to do good, to be rich in good deeds and to be generous and willing to share. The last thing that I want to mention here um, about the choking weeds is, is worry. Now, we are in a world of worry. I have to put my hand up and, and, and say, you know, yeah, there's a lot of worry going on, particularly all around this massive coronavirus pandemic. It sent us into hiding and we've spent months hiding away at home. Workplaces were shut. Shops were closed down. Jobs were lost. And no one has even known if we, we've even seen the worst of it yet. It could get even worse. We haven't met face to face as a church for well over six months and we have to think, well, how long can we go on like this? Is, is this the new normal? It is a worry. It's a genuine worry. But beyond the worries of living in a lockdown, there is the very real world of actually real risk of actually catching this virus um, outside of the lockdown you know, annoyance. Well, what if. I start to get ill. What if my, my wife starts to get ill um, or even dying? 
whenever someone coughs near me, I kind of start thinking, oh, no, you know, where is this going to go? You know, is this the start of something worse? Worry can really eat us up. It's like a a black hole just taking up all of the light. It can get you so fixated on what is going wrong that you just can't even see the things that are going right. It's like you're looking through the world through worry-tinted spectacles and everything is just coloured by gloom. The concept of serving God in a situation like this can just seem a million miles away. I just can't do this. I can't do that. It's all going wrong. Everything's a disaster. Proverbs 12.25 says, an anxious heart weighs a man down. Uh, Ecclesiastes 2.22 says, what does a man get for all the toil and anxious striving which, with which he labours under the sun? All his days, his work is pain and grief. Even at night, his mind does not rest. And there's a, there's a very telling curse in Deuteronomy 28, which says, the Lord will give you an anxious mind, eyes weary with longing and despairing heart. You will live in constant suspense, filled with dread both night and day, never sure of your life. In the morning you will say, if only it were the evening, and in the evening, if only it were the morning, because of the terror that will fill your heart from the sight that your eyes will see. Terrible curse. One person who really typifies worry in, for me in the Bible is Elijah, because he goes from, from such an amazing high to, to, to crashing despair. Um, and it's so bad that he, he just wants to, to run away and end it all. And he ends up with this mantra running round and round in his head, this kind of this um, negative philosophy that he embeds in his subconscious. I've been zealous for the Lord God, but the Israelites have rejected your covenant. They've broken your altars. The prophets have been put to death with the sword, and I'm the only one left. And now they're trying to kill me, too. And and this passage is said again and again and again. It's almost becoming this this um, subconscious fixation that he's embedding in his subconscious, that he's alone with his problems. There's no one to help. I'm going to die. Everything's a disaster. And he kind of staggers across this desert to get to Mount Sinai, hundreds of miles of desert, gets to the top and he gets to meet with his God. Can you imagine what an amazingly significant moment this is? Um, he meets with God, one of the few people who actually meet God face to face. And what encouraging words does God say to this, this, this broken, worry-filled man? He says, what are you doing here? What are you doing here? And the same mantra comes back in his life, this embedded mantra. My life is a misery. Everything's gone wrong. Jezebel is trying to kill me. Nobody loves me. Everything, everything's wrong. And what's God's first commandment to him? He says, go and stand in the presence of the Lord. Just stand in the presence of the Lord. And that's the first thing that we need to do when we're, we're weighed down with stress and worry. Just stand in the presence of God. Find that quiet place. Find that moment where the connection happens. You don't need to do anything. You don't need to change anything. You don't need to pretend that you're something that you're not. Just stand before him, warts and all, and just accept his presence in your life. And then the same question comes again. What are you doing here? Obviously, God knows, knew what he was doing here. I don't think that this was this gentle, comforting question. I think it was more of a confrontation. It was more like, a, what are you doing here? 
you, you shouldn't be here. You're not meant to be here. You're, you're not meant to be broken. You're not meant to be full of worry and despair. You are Elijah. Your name means the Lord Jehovah is my God. You are anointed, not forgotten. You are strong. You are not broken. You have God on your side. Didn't you see the fire fall and the clouds break? Didn't you see the altar rebuilt? Didn't you see the miraculous food and the dead brought to life? What are you doing here? Why are you hiding in a cave? Am I a God who hides in caves? No, I'm the God of fire, the God of mountaintops, the God of strength and victory, not self-pity. What are you doing here? And Elijah keeps on saying the same mantra in his head. Everything's gone wrong, but God has none of it. What are you doing here? And God says to him, go back the way you came and get on with your work. It's almost as if there's this just disconnect between the negative self-belief that Elijah has imprinted in his brain and the anointing that God has put on him. Just just put your worry behind you and walk away. Go back the way you came. Go back to the anointed place. Go back to the blessing. Go back to the call of God on your life and leave the worry behind you. God just doesn't seem to hear these sob stories. Elijah goes on and on about how he may as well die. And God seems to be on a different conversation, on a different page. Does it mean that God doesn't care? No, of course he cares. But he cares so much that he knows that the best cure for worry isn't to talk about more worry. That's not a cure. The best cure for worry that God presents here is that we should be focusing on what we should be doing and then to see the work of God around you and realise, yeah, I should go back to that place where I was doing the right thing. God puts Elijah back to work. He puts him back in the place where he's meant to be and shows what he can do for God's kingdom, what fruit and harvest he can bring. It seems to me that the battle between these choking weeds of worry and then the last group, which is the fruitfulness is where we should be. The choice between those, it seems to be more of a straight choice than, than, a, than a battle because, you know, for example, Matthew 6 says, don't worry. Just simply just don't worry about what we should eat, about what we should drink, about what we should wear. But seek first his kingdom and his righteousness and all these things will be given to you as well. This matches perfectly with, with Elijah. Just Just don't. Just don't. It, it seems incredibly simplistic. And, and forgive me in how simplistic it is. But again and again, God keeps saying, don't focus on your worry. Focus on on the kingdom. When you look around you and when I look around the church and the people who are most fruitful. Do we think that they leave some kind of blessed anointed life? Do they live in this in this holy bubble where there's no threats of losing their jobs or or coronavirus are, are they immune are they immune to mortgages or council tax or you know all of the other issues that surround us of course not no they're not when i look around the church at the fruitful people i don't see people who are exempt from the worries of life i see the people who stand above the worries of life so let's try and hang on to that choice the choice of worry or fruitfulness let's try and choose fruitfulness